Simple Beep, episode 67, Wishlists. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. So it's a new year, our fourth year of doing the podcast, I think, on the calendar at least. And uh, we took a little time off over the holidays, so we obviously have some follow-up to get to uh, close out 2017 before we get into 2018. Yes, our previous episode was about Apple hardware failures, and one of the ones we discussed was the first-generation iPod Nano, which eventually got a battery recall. And uh, one of our listeners, Jeremy, who's at PolySlicks on Twitter, let us know that since the program went on for so long, you could still send your first-generation iPod Nano back into Apple way after it had been discontinued. And apparently at some point, Apple ran out of replacement uh, batteries for that generation of iPod Nano. So instead of replacing the battery on the unit you sent in, they would just send you whatever was the current model of iPod Nano at the time. So he says he got a sixth generation iPod Nano. His friend got a seventh generation, both in return for sending in first generation iPod Nanos. That's uh, quite the upgrade. <laughs> yeah. It also shows just Apple's commitment to those type of programs where like if they feel like they owe you something, I mean, probably for legal reasons as well, but if they feel like they owe you something and they have to make it good to you, they're going to do um, whatever they can. I mean, at this point, you know, someday the iPod Nanos are going to run out and uh, <laughs> then then you just have to uh, live with the fact that you didn't get your battery replaced. One other replacement program that was recent was sent in by listener Kim Slauson. And this was the MacBook Pro anti-reflective coating repair. So apparently this was on the, the few models of MacBook Pro that had this special anti-reflective coating on the screen. So still a glossy screen, I think, but was supposed to make it less mirror finish. And, uh, it's one of these materials where it's all like laminated together. And apparently under certain conditions, it would start to come apart and produce this really ugly pattern in the bezel around the screen. And that got this, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this is it got this, the nickname Staingate. So that can be filed away with all of our other Apple gate scandals. On a different topic and uh, continuing our fine tr tradition of follow-up back to the very first few episodes, follow-up from episode two, which was on Kaleidoscope, we uh, have linked on Twitter over the holidays to a new Twitter bot that is delightful, that is at Kaleidoscope Mac. This is a unofficial Twitter bot. Uh, all of the uh, people who have contributed to Kaleidoscope uh, are no longer doing anything with it. And in fact, the Kaleidoscope scheme archive went away a year or two ago, and this bot is trying to uh, stand in its place. So the creator of the bot, Justin Falcone, who we've mentioned before, quickly becoming friend of the show, Justin Falcone, <laughs> has, uh, has actually gone through and he wrote a script to scrape the images from the internet archive. And he said that he had to do it really slowly to avoid getting rate limited. Um, but he's collected all of those. And now the bot is tweeting out the images that would appear in the scheme archive, uh, like one per hour. And... Uh, there's also on Macintosh Garden, there's an allegedly full copy of all of the schemes that were ever uploaded to the archive. I downloaded it and I've poked around a little bit. They're all SIT archives and you have to uh, you have to expand them one by one. So it's, it's not a great process. Um, 
But if it if his archive matches up with that, there's some, I think, like 4,000 schemes in total. Uh, so it's going to keep running for uh, for the next few months at the rate that it's going without repeats, which is pretty awesome. The magic of the internet. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, it's January of 2018. It's a new year. And a lot of the things I've been seeing around in the Apple community have been people putting together their wish lists for what is going to happen in the Apple world this year. You know, people are looking ahead to iOS 12. They're putting together their dream Mac Pro concepts and, and all of these sorts of things that they really hope that Apple will work on in 2018. But of course, we're not looking towards the future. We're looking towards the past. And instead of just sort of a historical view, we're going to uh, use our historian's lens as more of hindsight and roll back the clock and say, what would be some of our wish lists for Apple in some of the pivotal years in its history? So we're going to roll back to uh, January of many years, get in the time machine, and head back to January. We'll sort of set the scene for where Apple is at that point, and what would be on our wish list at that time, kind of taking into account what the Apple community was thinking then and what they thought the direction of Apple was. We know where it wound up. So each year we'll we'll do like many shows have been doing, also wrap-up shows of 2017. People some people have say, been saying, okay, so we made predictions in January of 2017. How did they turn out? Some great, some totally off the mark. And uh that was really how it's been going for several decades. <laughs> so into the Wayback Machine to January of 1991. And I'm going to put together my wish list here. And I think that there are three big areas that Apple could focus on in 1991. And there's a hardware one regarding processors. There's a big operating system piece. And then there's some new innovative hardware that they could put together in 1991. So the first thing that I think everyone expects is going to happen in 91 is that there are going to be Macs with a 68040 processor. The current Macs have the the Mac 2 line is running on the 68030 primarily, uh, but Motorola is working on this processor and it's going to deliver a lot of improvements. So let's presume that sometime this year, a 68040 Mac is going to become a reality. And presumably, given uh, you know the way that processor generations have gone, this would be effectively the Macintosh 3. And uh, I would see no reason why they wouldn't call it that, except for perhaps the fact that the Apple 3 was an unmitigated disaster. Another thing that we could probably expect from this type of machine is a 30 megahertz processor. Uh, it's very likely that at least the high-end ones of the 68040s will go that fast, and that these machines will start to have huge increases in storage space, up to hundreds of megabytes of hard drive space. So there are some existing Macs at this point, uh, at the beginning of 1991, that have storage around 120, 160 megabytes, and of course you can add external storage, but there should be options here for 
much larger drives pushing up to like 400 or 600 megabytes, which is a ton of space to to deal with. Um, so that's, you know, internal hard drive space comparable to what can be on a CD-ROM. Yeah. The next big area that everyone is, well, everyone knows it's coming is System 7. So the state of the art now is System 6. Some journalists have been looking at alpha or beta versions of System 7, and the rumor mill has been trickling out what is coming in System 7. So according to Macworld, the feature set was frozen in late October, and uh, developers have been playing with it since November, so a couple of months. And uh, the goal is that uh, developers should have their software ready by spring, and the final system software would ship in the first half of 1991. That's a quote from Apple. Um, big things that would be coming in System 7. First off, uh, is a real blessing getting rid of MultiFinder. Um, so in from the very beginning, there's been the question of how do we run multiple applications on the Mac. Uh, it goes all the way back to the Switcher, developed by Andy Hertzfeld in 1985. It was basically, as soon as the Mac came out, this was a pressing need. The Switcher was a bit of a hack. MultiFinder came out of that, and that's how to get from app to app in System 6. Uh, you can also, of course, run a desk accessory on the side, which gets kind of loaded into the current applications, memory space, and, and can run side by side. So, But the notion here is that we need to be able to run lots of apps side by side more and have them on screen and good multitasking support between them. So System 7 is promising that. And I think that what that means is that, you know, there's been a distinction between applications and desk accessories. And then if you have true multitasking, what is a desk accessory except kind of just a small application? And this opens up possibilities for other things to become more like applications. So control panels behaving more like applications, or just having lots of small applications that work together. Instead of having to have like an entire publishing suite in a single app, you can have the different functions, image editing or text editing or the layout itself happening in several different applications, and they can be smaller and more modular. And in fact, uh, there's rumors that Apple's going to put this kind of functionality into the operating system itself so that you can uh, you can create things in basically a mini app view within another app and have all of that data shared between them. The other thing that uh, is definitely a possibility with System 7 is uh, video applications. So another mini application that could definitely run in a layer uh, inside another application. And with that you know, increased hard drive space and faster processors, uh, it's becoming a reality that uh, computer video could really be a thing. And finally, uh, out on a limb prediction for System 7 is that it will itself be distributed on a CD-ROM as opposed to on floppy disks. And uh, this is just because the system is getting larger and larger, and uh, all of the attendant software that goes with it is going to be pretty unwieldy on floppy disks. And uh, CD-ROMs seem to be a real distribution method of the future. Last one here, and this one uh, this one is... Uh, an area where I think Apple has to make 
a big play is with a notebook Mac. So Apple was on the on the front wave with the Mac Portable a few years ago, uh, but uh, portable machines are getting smaller and smaller. And if uh, other platforms are the ones that have the best portable experience, then the Mac is going to be falling behind. So the a, a notebook Mac, first thing it has to do is get smaller. Uh, smaller form factor with perhaps a nickel cadmium battery instead, a rechargeable battery uh, with more capacity than the lead acid behemoth that's half of the weight of the Macintosh portable. And I think that Apple is going to be able to do some like really good miniaturization. So I think that they're going to aim for, at least on the high end, a 10-inch screen, and that screen should be color. So at this point in time, you know, the Mac SE 30 is a great computer still. It's one of the fastest Macs, but the whole, you know, practically the whole two line is expecting that you are operating in color. And System 7 is going to bring in colorized interface, video capabilities are not going to be good in black and white. So they should go all out with a color screen on whatever notebook Mac they're putting together. And finally, it its overall weight should be, I would say, a third of the Mac portable. Uh, if it's anything more than that, nobody is really going to want to lug it around. So how did 1991 me score on my wish list? All right. Your first wish list item was the 68040 processor. Well, we did get the processor. Um, were the machines, the first machines to carry it, were they called Macintosh 3? Uh, no. The first machines to get the 040 were the Quadras. And it's as I'm saying this now, is that where the name came from? That makes sense. <laughs> uh, it could, actually. But I, I don't understand why it, the first one was the Quadra 700. Yeah, because it wasn't like the, the the megahertz wasn't, you know, 7 or 70, certainly not 700. No spec on this machine had anything to do with 7 or 700. It was just a like cool future number that they pulled out and put there. And that was not really a great decision as it was the beginning of the awful product number era of Macintosh hardware, because up to this point, the only time that numbers had really been used to differentiate products was uh, in the, you know, couple years after the Mac came out, people referred to the 128K and the 512K, um, although they were often referred to just as the Mac and the Fat Mac. And the SE30 got the 30 treatment instead of the X treatment, as we discussed a couple episodes ago. But everything else, all of the top Mac models uh, were either the classic or in the two line. And all of those had um, Roman numerals plus letters. And the Quadra 700 went away from that. Speaking of specs and megahertz, uh, did your 30 megahertz model get released in 1991? Unfortunately not. Uh, it came out in the Quadra 950 you know, arbitrary number in 1992. Well, at least the numbers went up when they got more powerful. There was a discernible trend at the beginning. And finally, uh, was there a system with hundreds of megabytes of hard disk space? Yes, uh, it was a BTO option on the Quadra 900 in 1991. Yeah, I think that one did go up to 600 megabytes. Which is a lot. Right, so how, how was my video application pick? So video applications as part of System 7, 
Um, yes, video applications. We do get that. We get QuickTime version one, the original uh, release of QuickTime, just in Under the Wire in December of 1991. System 7, on the whole, uh, do we get multitasking that isn't dependent on a, a kind of separate multi-finder process? Yes, we do. Uh, do we get the the paradigm of um, like apps that can have like a little mini version of themselves where you can send data in between apps? Sure. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Publish and subscribe was a feature of System 7 and uh, continued on in OpenDoc later in the classic Mac. But despite the fact that these things were released, uh, none of them were successes. And finally, uh, will System 7 be distributed on a CD-ROM? Yes. Uh, however, is the option there to get System 7 on a giant uh, stack of floppy disks? Also, yes. I believe it was 15. <laughs> yep. Um, I can remember installing System 7 on our Mac 2, which didn't even have the full 1.4 megabyte super drive. Uh, it had 800K floppy disk support. So we may have had even more than 15 floppies. And I just remember the the long uh, copy slash install process. And then, you know, the disk spits out, <laughs> put the next one in and you have to sit there. One other note on the distribution of System 7, which is just an interesting aside, is that System 7.0 was the last free version of the Mac system software until they started giving it away for free late into the OS X era, which was what, like 2013? Yeah, like Mountain Lion or something. Yeah, they they charged they charged for 7.1, believe it or not, and there was a huge uproar. People just wanted to pass those uh, stacks of floppy disks around their Mac user groups. Someone's got to pay for them. <laughs> Finally, a smaller notebook Macintosh. Um, yes, we do get a smaller form factor. Uh, and you mentioned the, the battery technology affecting the weight. As we've discussed on the show... The, the PowerBook 100 lead-acid battery. But the 140 and 170 were released simultaneously, and they had an ICAD. Um, the 100 and the 140, did they have a color screen? Unfortunately, no. Um, black and white passive matrix. The uh, later 170 model had an active matrix grayscale. Grayscale monitor. Yeah, and they were they were all 9-inch screens, too. I went too big. That's right. Um maybe the the biggest thing about having a small truly portable notebook mac were they a third of the weight of the luggable macintosh portable yes uh under a third of the weight the portable was almost 16 pounds and the powerbook 100 was a little over 5 and the the other models were around 7 so they were they were at least half all right uh let's jump forward a couple years to 1994 this is a little bit of an inflection point um, for Apple, and uh, based again on a new processor architecture. This time, it's not just the jump from a Motorola-built 68030 to a 68040, but an entirely new architecture that's uh, the result of collaboration between Motorola and Apple and IBM. We knew going into 1994 that the the, the PowerPC, kind of the big second generation of Mac processors, is going to be coming out. So uh, what I want to see is not only like processor gains uh, at like equal megahertz levels, 
but I want to see uh, high megahertz processors blowing the uh, the previous 68K machines out of the water on paper and in real world performance. Uh, someone else who shares this wish with me is a fictitious member of the Mac community. It's Jason Fox from the comic strip Foxtrot. Um, as a meta note here, this there's a comic strip that I have been trying to find um, online since we've started making this show because I remember when it came out and was printed in the newspapers. Uh, basically, he's trying to describe to his older brother uh, what a girl infatuated with him uh, looks like when she looks at him. And so he tells his brother, say, 150 megahertz power PC processor. And the brother does. And then Jason starts to get a little infatuated look and little hearts float above his head. Uh, so that's what Jason Fox wanted. 150 megahertz power PC processor. And that comic is going to be in the show notes because uh, thanks to the holiday break, I was uh, visiting my parents. And when I was a kid, I had every single Foxtrot book. And you sent me on the on the quest to find this. And uh, a few hundred pages in, there it was, the 150 megahertz power PC processor. <laughs> and uh, so you mentioned the, the book that contains that strip was published in 96. But I think, you know, they wait, in, obviously, for the year of strips to run. And I think the book you mentioned was also like the combination of two years or, or two half years worth. So I think it's almost reasonable to think that Jason Fox had this wish in 1994. Yes, maybe not January, but somewhere somewhere along the line. Also in 1994, looking at the computer industry at large, um, Microsoft is dominant. It's We've already got little bits of Mac versus PC wars going on. Windows 3.1 is out, and it's 1994. We know Microsoft is working on a, a, a big uh, next release that's going to really depend on the uh, GUI. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll copy the Mac. <laughs> we, we don't know yet. Maybe just a little bit. So that's the reality of computing is a lot of businesses, um, some school districts will have PCs. They'll have either DOS or if they're fortunate, they'll have Windows 3.1. Apple is somewhat addressing this kind of cross-platform demand with um, some standalone new bus DOS or PC compatibility cards. Uh, some of the, f- the first models of this were codenamed Houdini, because I think it is a cool little magic act. It's basically a, a 386 or a 486 processor on a board You slide it into one of your Mac's new bus slots, and you can kind of piggyback on other system resources like memory, but you've got a a DOS or Windows uh, CPU inside your Mac. This is well before we can even dream of doing uh, software emulation of a robust uh, (laughs) operating system. So if you want to have a really slick solution for working with Microsoft uh, operating systems and software and files on your Apple machine, these uh, PC compatibility cards are the way to go. What I would like to see is, especially with knowing that we have more powerful machines in the pipeline, I would like to see some models that uh, can be ordered or at least configured to order from Apple that have a version of the DOS or PC compatibility card built in. And I know this might be treason for people in the Apple camp of the Mac versus PC wars, but I think that would be an unstoppable machine. 
Uh, you you buy Apple. You can run Windows or DOS if you need to. But uh, you know the, the glory and the money is going to Apple in that case. And for me in 1994, I want to play games on my computer. The Mac isn't attracting a whole lot of like big title games that uh, are being mostly saved for consoles at this time. And there are some ports that are going over to Windows first. So uh, I can also say that that being able to buy a machine from Apple that can run Microsoft targeted software also feeds into this wish of uh, more games for the Mac. But uh, also in general, I would like to see uh, games that I can run on my Mac, uh, ideally in the Mac OS. All right, let's see how it scored out. So your first one was the PowerPC. Like you said, uh, just the existence of PowerPC Macs was uh, pretty much a guarantee at the beginning of the year. They were released in March, so we knew that they were coming. The uh, dream of Jason Fox and Bill Amond, his creator of the 150 megahertz processor, uh, did not make it to the Mac in 1994. Uh, the first machine to have a PowerPC at that level was the next year, the PowerMac 9500, which had a base config of 120 megahertz and went all the way up to 200 or even dual 180s uh, in the CPU slot. Uh, as for the uh, the treasonous Macs with Windows and DOS compatibility cards, um, yeah. Those happened. In fact, uh, in that very first round of PowerMax, there were configurations of the PowerMax 6100 that came with the 60 megahertz uh, PowerPC and 66 megahertz 486 right alongside each other uh, on the main board. Nice. A couple years later, the 7200 got some got a configuration that had a 100 megahertz Pentium. And the year after that, the 7220... Now, see, this is where it's starting to get ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have here in, in the outline. The 7220, which is also the same as the 4400. Depending on what country you're, you're purchasing it. Uh, or which store you're purchasing it in. <laughs> Mid-90s Apple. Um, it had a 166 megahertz Cyrix processor. So that's from a manufacturer I've never even heard of. <laughs> I know. I looked it up. It is... Uh, DOS Windows compatible, um, and little bits of the Cyrix company and technology eventually made their way into AMD. Uh, there's there's an interesting thing on their Wikipedia page about how uh, their processor, I think the very same 6x86, was designed to compete with the Pentium, but there was something about how it didn't process certain FPU instructions in parallel, but the Pentium did. But basically what it came down to is that Quake performed better on the Pentium than on the Cyrix. And that's what sealed their fate. <laughs> kind of like uh, like certain titles were available on VHS and certain were not on Betamax. And it just kind of, you know, sealed the Betamax fate. That's really funny because, like, I mean, Quake frames per second was kind of like a benchmark for a long time. Even to the point where it got to be just kind of an abstract number, like you would just, you know, displays and the human eye only go up so far. But then you would have some GPU that you would like throw the original Quake engine at it. And it's like, I can render that at 7,000 frames a second. It's like, well, that's useless, but 
good on you. <laughs> so they did okay. Yeah, very very good picks. Uh, maybe not maybe not uh, really bold picks, but uh, all checked out for ninety four. So let's move on to ninety five. What do you have there? All right, so ninety four went great. We got a lot of powerful hardware. Uh, pun not intended, even though it was with the PowerPC. Um, and so what I would like to see now is for the PowerPC to trickle down in its second year to more consumer-friendly models. I want to see it come to the LC line. I've become very familiar with LC2s at uh, at our school district. It seems like very the, the perfect kind of computer for education, um, like... Uh, small budget consumers or even like enterprise distributions because it has a small footprint. It's for the person who doesn't want to put a big expansion card in it. It's the person who says, I, I want a Mac. I want it to run my applications. I want it to run system seven. I want to plug in a printer and maybe a modem and that's it. Yeah. So I want a true low cost, uh, ideally that same pizza box form factor, uh, LC update that includes the PowerPC. And you know, at this point, Apple's pretty successful in um, playing back media that's being distributed in a whole bunch of new ways. CD-ROMs are taking off. Uh, We've got very early internet, um, maybe mostly in the form of text and BBS, but there's there's a lot of media uh, that's more accessible than ever before. What I'd like to see, pie in the sky, I think Apple should make a TV. Because TV is still the king of media, um, and it, and Apple seems to have a, a pulse on on being the kind of the media focused technology company. It's still where graphic designers go. Um, there's just there's a lot happening in the Apple community around uh, graphics and and motion graphics specifically. I think the time is right for Apple to jump on uh, the the consumption side of that and make a really nice TV. Well, they make really nice displays, and uh, some of them even use the Sony Trinitron components, which are you know best in class for both computer displays and for television displays. Um, and last year, in 1994, uh, the Macintosh TV was quietly released. Um, not a big hit in the market, but it did have a really cool black case. Um, and it was kind of a Macintosh and a TV alternately, because, yeah, it had a TV tuner in the back that you could plug into um, either, you know, an antenna signal or a cable signal. Um, But you kind of flipped modes, like this screen is going to behave like a TV, or this screen is going to behave like a Mac. Uh, But the question here is, what if you could make the TV behave more like a Mac? Uh, Like you said, Brian, yep. Uh, more and more people are getting internet connectivity. Could there be interactive features there? That kind of thing. So <laughs> how did 1995 end up for, for this list? Um, well, you, you went you went small on one and big on the other. Uh, and you won the small bet uh, for the LC PowerPC. Uh, the first one of these was, again, with the awkward naming, we don't know which direction we're going, uh, the Power Macintosh 5200. 75 LC. So they just kind of tacked it on at the end there. In the earlier LCs, there was actually a separate processor family that was the LC processor family, which meant, you know, less performance per clock cycle, but 
if you were not a highly demanding user, you didn't necessarily need that. You weren't going to expect that you had to feed in a bunch of data from internal buses. Uh, so you could get away with that. And that was what made it LC, made it low cost. Um, but this Power Mac actually just had a straight up PowerPC 603 processor in it. So the cost cutting was, was elsewhere and low cost was relative. It shipped for $2,000 as its initial price. Um, but it's interesting. It is, uh, kind of the first modern all in one Mac that this, this really looks like just a beige attempt at an iMac almost. Yeah. It's kind of the, uh, the ancestor of the Molar Mac too. Right. So the Molar Mac is, is halfway in between where it's getting into translucent plastics and some more curves, but these all in one power Macs were pretty rectangular. Uh, they did have embedded stereo speakers in the bottom left and right. Um, they had had floppy drive and CD drive centrally located, uh, not centered, but they were this this new all-in-one approach, and that was what kept the cost down again. That sort of like, um, you know, not a particularly expandable machine um, and not looking to do a whole lot of data crunching. So yeah, the 5200 came out in April of 95, followed quickly by a 5300 uh, in August of 95. Technically a win, but it's not the, uh, the kind of machine I was looking for. There wasn't any kind of, uh, low cost power PC, just like unit that you could slot into an existing setup. You had to buy, uh, the all-in-one, but as it would turn out, the all-in-one kind of became Apple's famous consumer (laughs) offering. So, uh, they clearly knew what they were doing and I did not. And how about the answer to that? Age-old question, what if Apple made a TV? <laughs> in 1995, Apple did not make a TV. In fact, I believe that was the year that they discontinued the Macintosh TV. Well, I'm sure we can uh, just take that as a sign and never wish for this again, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we won't come back to that at all. All right, fine. I'll move on to 1996. And uh, this year, my wish lists have been pretty hardware focused. So I am going to turn my wishes for 1996 onto my favorite piece of Apple software, arguably of this era, HyperCard. Literally in 1996, Ed and I were uh, attending the same school and there was a competition for fifth and sixth graders that was like, uh, make your own invention. Everyone would come up with their designs and some people would build them out and you would put together a trifold display and uh, we put them all up in the gym and people voted on who had the coolest ideas. Uh, so my idea as a sixth grader in 1996 was uh, for software for babysitters because this was fast becoming my uh, main source of income since I'd already lost all my baby teeth. And uh, and so I wanted to have software that could help me manage you know, my very busy schedule of babysitting gigs. And uh, I actually made most of this. It was basically a calendar with uh, with like very crude reminders and uh, notes about the children you were babysitting <laughs> tied into like each uh, appointment. You tried to make a CRM for your uh, lucrative babysitting business is what you did. <laughs> I did. I tried to make a CRM that was like based around a calendar in HyperCard for my invention. This is all true. This is all happening in 1996. And so I'm, I'm, I love HyperCard. I, I spend 
you know, hours in it after school, whether for things that are serious or just for like flipbook style animations. I'm in HyperCard all the time. And I hear that some of my friends are online and I've, I've, you know, I've been online. I've seen how HTML pages work and the concept of HTML pages that link to each other seems a lot to me like HyperCard stacks full of HyperCard cards. And, you know, if you're digging into HyperTalk, the programming language like I am, maybe you can do some really cool things. And uh, maybe the metaphor works so well that I just want to make HyperCard stacks, you know, maybe like a, a personal website about me where I have a card for each of my interests or something like that. And I just want to throw that stack on the internet and I want it to work. I don't want to learn a new language. I just want my HyperCard stacks to function as websites. And uh, obviously this will take things like an internet connection and an internet service, which are uh, also wishes I had for myself and my family in 1996. I Spoiler alert, those do not come true for a couple of years. But my big wish is that something happens with HyperCard that uh, ideally from Apple that allows you to take what you know about HyperCard and how to use it and translate it very easily to the internet, the World Wide Web. And that seems like a big wish. So that's all I'm going to do for 1996. It's a big wish. And it's a wish that was not granted. Not by Apple. There were some third-party attempts. Uh, So apparently there was an application called LiveCard that was available that would read in HyperCard stacks and uh, create them using uh, CGI scripts and images. Uh, I think it sounds like it pretty much uh, rasterized everything. And probably did like image maps. Yeah, that would be the way to do it. Um, You would probably lose almost all of your HyperTalk functionality, um, especially any fun animations, sound, that that would all go away. But, you know, your basic calendaring and reminder feature... uh, could, could be present there. Um, this is, of course, a good time to mention a strange Apple product that we used around this time that was viewed as a HyperCard successor that went absolutely nowhere, which was Apple Media Tool. I know we've mentioned it on the show before, um, and there's so little information about it. Um, it must have been just a complete bust. I don't know if it was like education-specific only, Um Apple Media Tool was designed for essentially creating like rich offline applications with color and embedded video and embedded audio. Um, and instead of like HyperCard, where you would either just see a single card or you would see thumbnails of all the cards, you would get this like map view and show all of the semantic links between the card, between the different screens uh, visually. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the, the most successful apps that were like that were the ones that were things like Dreamweaver that were geared at creating websites and publishing them online. But Apple Media Tool was exclusively focused on that offline component. So, uh, both for HyperCard and for other software that was being created by Apple, they were just not really interested in the online publishing side of things. And also on uh, Apple's adventures into the internet, 
1996. This is the tail end of the eWorld era. Uh, and, you know, a piece of software like eWorld and the, you know, the, the walled garden that it gave you access to had no way to talk to something like HyperCard, didn't even really have good ways to talk to uh, these other early HTML web development apps. Um, I mean, I'm sure you must have been able to get some sort of TCP IP access out and uh, and put something on a web server via eWorld, but it was not an integrated experience, not a Mac-like experience, and was not long for the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to 1997. Uh, another one that I'm going to take and predict a pretty big year here. So in 1996, uh, we're really getting into the PowerPC era, and there are so many good PowerPC machines. There are, of course, the ones that we've been talking about that are coming from Apple, but there are tons of great PowerPC Mac clones that are being offered by other companies, um, including from directly from Motorola, companies uh, like Power Computing, StarMax, yeah, yeah. lots of options. Um, not beautiful machines on the outside, but some of the most powerful Macs out there are being made by clone manufacturers. And so I think that continued high clone performance and pushing Apple from the top is going to be something that will continue through 1997 and that the clones will hit the 300 megahertz tier uh, sometime before the end of the year, which is pretty incredible performance at this point in history. And uh, we're also starting to hear that, you know, 300 megahertz, that's kind of topping out at the current breed of PowerPC processors, the uh, the 600 family of processors. So uh, Motorola is working on a new family that's probably going to be the 700 uh, line of processors, PowerPC processors. And I think, of course, you know, the clones are going to take huge advantage of those, perhaps better advantage of those than even Apple can, uh, as they're, you know, just pushing, pushing, pushing CPU performance is one of their biggest goals for 1997. Uh, another thing that's, uh, almost certainly going to happen, we hope this year is, uh, getting a Copeland replacement. Um, Copeland is Apple's next generation operating system. It has more or less been scrapped. It's gone through loads and loads of development delays and and trouble. But as of just December of 1996, there's some big news. Uh, there were two big companies that were in the running for uh, for sweeping in and saving Copeland, and those were, of course, B and Next. And in December, the acquisition of Next was announced. And so this brings up a, a really interesting question. Uh, presumably, the Next team, which includes Steve Jobs, uh, co-founder of Apple, is uh, going to be more or less in charge of replacing Copeland and creating the next, uh, ha, see, <laughs> the next <laughs> Mac operating system. Um, but their state-of-the-art is Next Step, which uh, has lots of very interesting software features uh, that could be useful. But the question is basically, are Macs going to start running Next Step, or should you just, you know, 
buy a clone and run next step on it. Um, are we all going to be running next step in uh, the beginning of 1998 uh, under the, you know, the name of Apple? And I wouldn't particularly want that because next step is not beautiful. Uh, you know, we, I, I'm a big fan of kaleidoscope and running kaleidoscope schemes. And there's probably about a dozen schemes each where people have taken their attempt on replicating the next step interface or the BOS interface. And I've kept around a couple of the B schemes, but the next ones do not last. I mean, it looks a little Windows ish. Um, but we've seen in some of the early Copeland mockups, uh, the platinum appearance. Of course, that was how we got to Kaleidoscope in the first place was through the, uh, the Aaron extension, uh, which then got, um, new capabilities and, uh, more abilities to, uh, customize the windows in in other ways. Um, but I think that that platinum appearance is definitely, that kind of has to be the new look of macOS, at least in this coming generation. And the final thing is, what's the timing going to be? So uh, it's only been less than a month since the next acquisition. Obviously, they have to move personnel, they have to move uh, equipment, they have uh, people in uh, high leadership positions, uh, including jobs coming back to Apple. Um, and they need to basically take an ugly code base and either scrap it or uh, replace it just sort of wholesale. Um, so my prediction is that even though Copeland has been delayed, macOS 8 has been delayed so much, there's no way that we'll see it within the year in 1997. Um while we're on the topic of Next, what else can Next bring to the Mac and Apple? And I think one of the biggest things that they can bring is some of their internet technology. We were saying last year, Apple did not go for uh, HyperCard on the web or uh, web development, but that's perhaps because they felt like they had to bring it up from scratch. But Next has a leading technology that's called Web Objects uh, that allows for companies to create these robust online applications, uh, handles all of the database backend, all of the scripting, um, and really allows them to create some interesting things. It would be very cool if uh, this got maybe not folded into the operating system itself, but uh, released out to Mac users so that they could start to build web objects applications and, and see where that goes. Um, and of course, if it is tightly integrated with the operating system, uh, that could be a big advantage for uh, making Apple and the Mac a big player in, in web development. Um, and of course, uh, like I said, the personnel is huge. Um, getting Steve Jobs back at Apple lets him get his hands back on some hardware. So in Next's history, they, they made some really cool computer designs, um, uh, including the, the Next Cube. Uh, they had a really fun black aesthetic, I think better looking than the software, to be honest. But their hardware division was not really successful. Uh, and they went to doing software only, focusing on their operating system and the surrounding apps in 1993. So they, they shut down and liquidated their hardware operations then and laid off some 350 people. Uh, but 
I'm sure that there are still people there at the company who, uh, given the resources that hopefully Apple still has, even though they've forked over quite a bit uh, for the acquisition, if they've got anything left, uh, perhaps uh, perhaps those people can get involved in hardware design and and put together some some cool things. On that line, uh, we've been talking a lot about the Mac, but it's not Apple's only hardware. Uh, they also have the Newton uh, Palm Top Computing. Uh, handheld computing. Um, and that's one thing that I would like to see this year is uh, perhaps that they can give a little bit of a revival to the Newton and to go to really a true handheld design. The Newton is starting to look like, even though it had uh, revolutionary technology at the beginning um, and with its new operating system, things like handwriting recognition have gotten much better, but the hardware design is still a little bit clunky. Um, there are other people coming into this space of handheld computing, most notably Palm. Uh, in uh, March of 96, they released the Palm 1000, and it's really small. It's truly a handheld. Uh, it weighs 5.6 ounces as compared to the big behemoth now looking Newtons. You know, they seemed very small and miniature. Uh, when the line was first launched, but not anymore. So I would like to see a truly handheld Newton coming in at, if not 5.6 ounces, less than half a pound. Um, so those are my wishes for a big 1997 for Apple. I think you'd, you'd probably be impressed with how Apple did. And I say how Apple did, because uh, the first item on your wish list concerned the Macintosh clones. And as we now know, when Steve Jobs came back, he did not like the clones. He did want to get back into hardware. He didn't want anybody else messing with his hardware. Right. So the the overall wish of clones continuing to get better, uh, like kind of happened, but overall the clones were basically doomed. Uh, clones did hit 300 megahertz. Uh, the, the Mac line spreading first and third party machines did hit 300 megahertz. So that performance was there. Um, but uh, did we ever get to G3 clones or the, the the forthcoming 700 series of Motorola processors? There were like two or three SKUs of G3 clones across all of the clone manufacturers. And I think it was the ones that had like that had the most favorable deals with Apple that continued to let them uh, produce those machines at the lower cost to them instead of the higher licensing fee. Um, but those were not not great machines. So overall, the clones, uh, the clone program was uh, did not have a good 1997. The replacement for Copeland, the next big Macintosh operating system, however, uh, did have a big 1997. So uh, your first wish list that we take the next step um, foundation and structure of the operating system that came true. The next step NS prefix actually uh, survives to this day. A lot of classes um, in, in Mac programming still have NS prefixes. You are probably listening to this podcast on advice, running an app that has NS prefixes in it. Because I know that most of you listened to this on Overcast, and it is not written in Swift. Um, but you were afraid that such an operating system, if we take the operating system wholesale from Next, it's not going to look great. Well, 
uh, fear not. The next big Mac operating system had next uh, behind the scenes, but they kept the platinum appearance uh, that we first started to embrace in the Aaron software extension, which is side note, one of my favorite <laughs> pieces of software of all time. Um, so yeah, we're kind of getting the best of both worlds. And we did see the like ugly marriage of those in uh, in the first developer previews of Mac OS X, which was actually the first time that um, they really built on the full next step code base instead of like one, two, three, cleaning up what they what had been written already of Mac OS eight. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen those screenshots, they are like from another planet um, because it basically looks like next step running with kaleidoscope <laughs> or with the Aaron extension if that was a possibility um they're really uncanny valley so you kind of got the best of both worlds and like you said um it's probably not going to happen within the year uh except this was the one prediction that was wrong mac os 8 uh was released in the summer in july so they they combined them and they released them as for your other wish list items about like what's Steve Jobs going to bring back from next, um, <laughs> I am laughing because in the notes here it just says web objects and has the little star emojis bookending. It. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, uh, this is also something that you can probably still interact with today. Uh, certain what is it like app listings or like the web page listings for uh, things in the iTunes Store or I think maybe even the Mac app store are all still running on web objects. It's clunky and it's awful. Yeah. I commented on a tweet. I think it was from Rene Ritchie a couple weeks ago where he found a link to a page in the iTunes store that lists all of the 4k HDR movies that are available for sale now in 2018. And he's like, here's all the 4K HDR movies. And there's a link and it has web objects in the URL. And I'm like, these, what are these technologies doing together? These have no, no business being anywhere near each other. Um, web objects was great in 97, but it's not great 21 years later. And uh, Steve Jobs, as we all know, definitely got back into uh, leading the the charge on some new hardware at Apple. Um, we can go into all different kinds of, of examples of that. One of them, kind of the Newton you're asking for. Um, we did get some new Newtons in 1997, um, kind of going in descending order of, uh, <laughs> of weight since your, your goal was uh, let's, let's see like something that's truly handheld, ideally less than half a pound. We got the E-Mate, <laughs> um, definitely not less than half a pound, actually four pounds and more of a laptop notebook form factor than uh, palm top computing. But we also got a complete refresh of the traditional Newton message pad line with the message pad 2000. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's not less than half a pound. In fact, it's not even less than a pound. It was 1.4 pounds, but we did get the the kind of the refresh of the Newton that kept it somewhat competitive with Palm as Palm was really ramping up their very sleek uh, pilot line. And uh, as for the return of Steve Jobs, um, I don't think anyone really knew in January of 97. I have the memory of the Mac Addict cover um, 
I'll put a link in the show notes. It's on the Internet Archive. Steve Jobs, how he will save Apple. And there's a black and white dithered picture of him wearing a Catholic priest's collar with a three-dimensional halo over him. This is the January 1998 issue of Mac Attic Magazine. Another thing Steve did in 1997 that wasn't really hardware or uh, like in-house Apple software related was the giant Microsoft deal that kind of saved Apple where uh, Bill Gates appeared uh, via giant video chat at, what was it, Macworld Boston to commit to uh, keep making Microsoft Office for the Mac and I think invest a little money into Apple. It was one of the many things that Steve did to help turn it around. I think that if you do the math, the uh, you can kind of stand back and squint and say that Microsoft almost funded the next acquisition uh, kind of in, in arrears, which is a, a pretty funny way to think about it. Moving on to 1998, um, Apple has released a very special machine in the year leading up to this, the 20th anniversary Macintosh. This looks awesome. It's being used in very cool sci-fi TV and movies. It incorporates a flat screen into an all-in-one design with a vertical CD-ROM drive. I don't even know how that works. Um, but it's expensive, and it should be. It's a special edition. What I want in 1998 is a uh, a revival of my my wish from 1995. I think this is great technology. I'm all in on the all-in-one. I don't need a pizza box, but I do want a, a consumer-oriented version of the 20th anniversary Mac, or more generally, a flat panel all-in-one Mac. I don't need the like the fancy Bose subwoofer. I want something that maybe I can get to replace the Mac 2 that's still in my room, actually, at this point. Um, something that I can use uh, with more modern software, maybe get on the internet uh, while I type up all my papers in high school. And I think that's a pretty big request, seeing as uh, flat panel displays are relatively new technology, certainly in the consumer space, and are probably expensive. So for Apple to pull off a consumer-level flat panel all-in-one is a, is a tall order. So that's where I'm going to leave it for 1998. Right. The, uh, the real question there is how much of that hefty price tag on the 20th anniversary Macintosh is going just towards that display. I think that if you actually look at it, it looks a lot like a modern PowerBook display. And the the fact of the matter is that PowerBooks don't cost $10,000. Um, they're not the lowest cost Macs in the lineup because you are paying for those portable uh, or at least miniaturized components that go in them. But there's no reason that you couldn't necessarily take something that was perhaps initially conceived of as as a laptop part and uh, and put it on the desktop in an attractive enclosure. And the display technology in laptops at this point is is actually very good. It's not like uh, it's not like those uh, old passive matrix screens where you were really really giving something up uh, on the laptop version as opposed to the desktop version. So is this your one one and only one wish for 1998, Brian? It's a big wish for 1998. Well, you, you got something better, <laughs> but the original iMac did not have a flat panel display. But it was all-in-one. It was an amazing design. It came in beautiful colors, and it dropped in May of 1998. And it was uh, 
the consumer oriented. Um, I don't think that Steve had set up his famous two by two grid yet, but this was very clearly the, the every man computer, the not quite budget, but you know, the, the more accessible version of otherwise pretty modern technologies. Yeah. This was the third cell in the grid. Uh, still, still missing that consumer laptop because there you need both the cost and the miniaturization. It's hard to get both. As for putting LCDs on the desktop, though, uh, I'll give you a half point here uh, because also in uh, in 1998, Apple released its first standalone LCD display, this LCD Studio display. This is one of those that has the kind of bluish purple translucent plastic and a telescoping arm. Um, actually, you can tell that this came out less than a year after the 20th anniversary Mac and also came out in the same year as the iMac. Um, those form actually a pretty, pretty nice little set there. Um, and it's price like, you know, uh, this is, uh, the studio display that then became, uh, the cinema display line. Um, and those are known for being not budget picks, uh, for monitors, uh, and, the uh, the original studio display had a price tag of two thousand dollars, so you could get uh, an all in one Mac, or for less than that, or you could get this really gorgeous flat panel display. It would be a little bit longer before all of those came together in the iMac G4 in two thousand two, which is one of my favorite Apple designs of all time, and um, answers that question of how do you design a all in one with a flat panel display is you make it an all in one and a half. Uh, it's all connected, but uh, you separate the display component and the computing components and connect them via this both beautiful and very functional Chrome arm. Um, I still, um, you know, I still kind of miss that. Um, the ability to have that much control over where your screen is, even on a laptop, even on an iPad um, that you can pick up and hold in your hands, um, just being able to kind of put the screen at any angle and just have it stay there um, is really useful. And people who mount their iMacs on uh, on the Visa mount arms, I totally get it. I've I've never done that. I've never had the place to do that, but I totally get it because those are the people who probably also loved the iMac G4. Okay, so um, yeah, I kind of got my wish there, and I did end up getting uh, a G3 iMac for my room during high school. So it all worked out for me. Uh, so I'll move back to one of my other crusades for 1999. Um, now I have an iMac, and I want to play games on it. And there's this amazing piece of software that's already out by 1999 from Connectix, and it's called Virtual Game Station. The PlayStation is out. The PlayStation is popularizing uh, quality video games that are distributed and played off of CD-ROMs. The Nintendo 64 is out. It's doing great, but it's got cartridges. But the PlayStation has these awesome games, games that I enjoy playing, <laughs> Crash Bandicoot and like Big Air 95 or some, some snowboarding game. Um, but the media that the console uses is the exact same as the media that I use to install software or listen to music on the Macintosh that's on my desk and Connectix, who has done other like amazing things that push the boundaries of your Mac system uh, already has this bit of software that lets you put a PlayStation CD into your Mac and it'll basically emulate 
the the PlayStation hardware natively on your Mac. You can plug in. Uh, I think I had a Mac Alley USB uh, game controller that basically um, ripped off the the native first party PlayStation controller. And so, like, this is amazing. I can play PlayStation quality games on my Mac. The PlayStation itself costs, I don't know how many hundred dollars. And this is a piece of software that is a fraction of that. It's a great deal. What I want is for Apple to really get back into (laughs) the games game and either acquire Virtual Game Station from Connectix or acquire Connectix outright. I don't care. (laughs) Or uh, make your own version about of this and build it into the OS. Because while the Virtual Game Station software is incredible, it's very clearly a third-party app that doesn't entirely respect all of the Mac app conventions. And this is something that Mac users and particularly Mac lovers always notice if a Mac app doesn't feel like a Mac app. And I'm sure if Apple's doing it natively, they can maybe get a little bit better performance out with some tighter integrations or private APIs or something. So my first wish, this is is actually a true wish Brian had in 1999. Get me a better, more first-party integrated version of Virtual Game Station so I can continue buying cheap PlayStation games at CD Game Exchange and playing them on the Mac that I already have. You know, that would make just so much sense. It would be like a lesson learned from the Pippin, which was a couple years before this, where the model there was that you had to put an entire copy of macOS on the game disc. And then you went into this, you know, you would put this thing in and it would boot macOS very slowly, but it would dump you immediately into the game. Like, what if the operating system feature was the other way around, where you had this virtualization layer in the operating system, and it just knew that if you, you know, if you put in a game CD and went to boot, you know, because it would go through the boot order of, you know, like check all of the drives to see what is my startup disk. And it would say, oh, there's a game CD in there, kick to the virtualization layer, and don't even bother loading macOS, just dump straight in. Or like only only load the libraries or like only load the extensions that are necessary to play this game. Like that actually makes a ton of sense. And it would be like a huge lesson learned from going the opposite way on the Pippin, which would like introduce massive overhead and made things worse. See, there's all kinds of precedent for this to happen. Um, like what, like you just said, the reverse Pippin uh, model. There's also Apple has built in Microsoft support for if you put in a a floppy disk that's fat formatted and contains you know like eight character file names with three digit three character extensions. Uh, the Mac can natively do its best to interpret those files. Why not put in this layer that whether it's it's a new boot layer or it's something the system can do uh, natively. I, I think I think this could happen. <laughs> well, maybe the reason for this is that Apple thinks that uh, that really high quality games are just going to be written as Mac apps. And you know what? I wouldn't mind if that happened too. Um, I'm a full on Ambrosia fan at this point in 1999. Escape Velocity is out. It's one of my favorite video games of all time. Uh, give me more games like that. Uh, keep Ambrosia going. Bring big game publishers to the Mac. Let them start writing uh really like world attention grabbing games for the Mac. So if if that happens, fine. I don't need to kind of bootleg PlayStation games on my Mac. So one way or another, I want in 1999 for like real games 
to come to the Mac. That's my first wish. And you know what? While I'm at it, you know, where, where do people play a lot of games? I've been talking about consoles, PlayStation, N64, uh, whatever Sega has out at this time that's probably not doing that great. Um, and they're all playing those at TVs. So let's bring up that old thing. Uh, Apple should probably make a TV. Uh, pretty much the same arguments as the last time this was on the wish list. Uh, the internet is exploding even more. And I think at this point, there's media being distributed over the internet. Um, so take a company that's great at technology. They have a computer, the iMac, that's built around making the internet accessible. Um, make all these technologies and put it into something that's that's television sized. Make it Apple make a TV. <laughs> I want I want my media. I want my media in the way that I consume it to um to show on an Apple television. I'll I'll bring that one back too. Well and the iMac design is more CRT focused than any of the all-in-ones that Apple has ever created to this point. Uh, the display and the case are the features. Um, they also tout the quality of the stereo speakers. So you would want to watch video on uh, a nice pair of stereo speakers. And really, the only additional thing that's on the front of the device is the CD-ROM drive. And so if you can imagine, you know these are 13-inch these are computers uh, with the all-in-one, but people who have not all-in-ones like to go for bigger displays. You start getting up into 23-inch displays, and you're talking about the size of a, a small TV. Um, so putting those features in uh, would make a lot of sense with the hardware. I'm going to make one more. This is kind of a pie-in-the-sky uh, wish for 1999. Um, Apple's laptops are getting better, and uh, and their batteries are getting pretty good. I think they're kind of getting close to this five hours that they use as a benchmark in their advertising. And that's a long time. I could watch a movie and do more stuff. So I think increasingly um, people who get Mac laptops are going to be away from a power source, like truly, you know, using it in their lap. And uh, again, the internet is becoming more and more of a thing in our lives every day. Um, and, you know, there, there are cell phones and there are certain there's rumblings of wireless protocols. I think it would be great if Apple could get out ahead of this and um, and make wireless computing networked and local a possibility. That one sounds crazy, though. That can't come true. Yeah, that would be a huge one. Um, apparently, there are uh, some industry standards being worked on for wireless networking, but uh, that would be the adoption of that, especially in uh, consumer technology, portable technology would be would be pretty huge. Mm -hmm. All right. Scorecard for 1999. This was maybe not your best year. Um, Apple definitely did not acquire Connectix and copy the virtual game station into Mac Darn OS, it. <laughs> but that would have been cool. Um, regarding... Um, Getting some more high-quality games on the Mac. Uh, you pointed out the shareware titles that were there. Um, Ambrosia, you know, venerable Mac developer, continued on for a long time. Still still out there, making a couple of their utilities and stuff, um, but not the, not the games powerhouse that they were uh, at this time. But then, you know, you said get the big game development companies. What, you know, what were some of the biggest titles that had been put out on the Mac? Things like Marathon from Bungie. And man, 
if we were grading this at the end of 1999, we might have marked this as a win for you. (laughs) Because at Macworld Expo in July, Steve Jobs in the keynote made a huge announcement, which is that Bungie's next big title, which is going to be called Halo, is going to be released simultaneously on Mac and Windows. This came... This this did not come true like three ways. Oh no. First of all, Bungie got bought by Microsoft and Halo was released as an Xbox exclusive to launch their console and uh change the face of the console wars for the next decade or so. Um then when there finally was a PC port of Halo, it came to Windows first. And then it was like another nine months or something before it came to the Mac. And then it came to the Mac and it was terrible. <laughs> I still bought it. <laughs> Your other pick fared much better, though. Um, and, and this was an interesting one because you went for the feature, not the product. Um, you, you were looking for wireless networking. And uh, you didn't go for the big request here, which was, as we mentioned, the uh, filling out the product line and, and the grid of four. We had three out of the four. Um, but no consumer laptop. And as it turned out, uh, this, you know, this big feature of having wireless networking actually went first into the consumer laptop, which was released in 1999, which was the iBook, the companion to the iMac. I, I have my banner here sitting in my office. I can look at it here. iMac to go. That was the slogan. Um, and part of being to go was having that wireless capability, um, you know, wherever you had set up your, your Mac, your iMac, you would probably put in, you know, maybe you weren't on broadband yet. Maybe you didn't have a high-speed home network, but you had probably connected it to the internet uh, some way. And if you had a new portable Mac, uh, if you were going to be using it in your home, you would want to be able to use it on the internet without plugging it into a wire on the same desk as your desktop Mac. That doesn't make any sense. Um and airport was the way to go. It was, of course, an option when it was first on the iBook. And option in the truest sense is where you actually installed a separate card uh, that could be inserted or removed or added at a later date. Um, and it also came at the same time Apple released its take on the Wi-Fi standard base station and dubbed it airport. And we still have airport devices, uh, right? We still have airport devices in 2018. They still make one, right? Was that official that they, or was it just like little birdies say that, that the airport division has stopped working on new things? I guess they, they still sell them. So not only did you get that wish, it's obviously proved to be uh, a very important feature of all Macs to the point that you know we expect wireless networking in our desktops as well. Um, and many people use them that way. This would have been the year for me to say, hey, this uh, this pro-level machine is doing really well. Let me see the consumer version of it. Alas. You were burned by your, by your uh, unsuccessful picks earlier, so you didn't want to go too big. All right. Well, let's roll into the new millennium, the year 2000. Um, let's stay on this laptop line of thinking. So the iBooks are out, and they have the option of airport wireless networking. Um, PowerBooks are coming out that will have th- that too. And I think it's it's becoming clear that laptops are the way of the future. I'm going to go to college in a couple of years, and I definitely want to take a Mac laptop. I'm 
probably won't take this uh, 50-pound iMac with me. So I'm going to be moving around with my laptop a lot. Hopefully, you know, it'll have good battery life. It'll have wireless networking. I can use it outside. I can use it on the couch. But, you know, it's five hours of battery life, probably. So I'm going to want to take it back in and charge at the end of the day. And, you know, I'll have stuff to plug in, um, you know, like a printer, maybe an external uh, pointing device if I continue to play games in the way that I am. Um, So what I want is to bring back uh, something akin to the Duo Dock. I want to have a laptop that is very easy to take with me and function as a laptop, completely untethered from stuff. And then when I get back to my desk, I want it to be easy to get back connected to all these things. Um, I don't want to have to deal with a mess of cables for all the different things. Like I hear some people, uh, you know, like output their laptop to a second screen. So if I want to do that, I'm going to have power, second screen. Um, probably at college, I'm going to have an ethernet cable because, uh, you know, college gives you free, fast ethernet. Why not take advantage of it? Uh, headphones or speakers. So all these things, what I want is, you know, kind of like a very simple docking thing, like the duo dock, you just kind of chunk the whole laptop in and it's this, you know, giant array of pins that distribute all the different signals to the various buses, uh, something like that. That would be great. That's my wish for 2000. Uh, since we have laptops that we're taking everywhere with us, I want an easy way to plug them in back in uh, power and everything when we get back to our desks. And hey, maybe that docking station could also be a TV. <laughs> that, that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> but you didn't get a docking solution really either. Um, I remember years of uh, of you know commuting to classes in college and, and then, yeah, plug, 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 plug. Even though we had the wireless internet in the machine back in in the dorm back to ethernet (laughs) um but apple was thinking along the same lines they did release uh one technology that was sort of like this which was adc that's apple display connector right Mm -hmm. this came out in 2000 uh with the g4 cube and g4 tower and did enable some of the apple displays uh, I guess the cinema displays at this point to act as hubs of a sort uh, to provide uh, power to certain machines. And also, I think uh, a couple of USB ports. Is that right? Powered like DVI and USB all over one cable. And this has continued uh, in more recent years with Thunderbolt when Apple released the Thunderbolt display, which was non retina, but had a really versatile hub uh, with lots of additional ports that you could uh, plug into. It did have Ethernet, uh, USB, and more. And then just a single, uh, you know, I guess at that point, if you were using a laptop with one of those displays, you had two cords to plug in. You had the Thunderbolt connector and power if you needed it at the moment. And of course, now Apple has some machines that only have one port. Uh, and it's, it's like they're still trying to solve this problem, and if you uh, if you have you know a uh, a one port MacBook, you kind of need a solution like this. But a lot of the ways that you can do this is by purchasing either a very expensive Apple dongle and perhaps dongling your dongles to get all the kind of ports that you want, or going to a third party solution. Um, we actually just bought one of those 
um, for a MacBook in my house because uh, we need it. <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't happen for laptops. Certainly in two thousand, it really only happened for displays. Uh, so we're going to move to two thousand and one, and this is another huge transition point for Apple because the next operating system is out, Mac OS ten, and uh, we discussed the the ten versus X. Um, a couple episodes ago, and X is kind of the way forward. Aqua is the way forward. Um, so I'm going to make uh, a repeating wish one more time here. What I want now in 2001, we have the iMac, we have Power Max, we have Steve's Grid, but we have the the Cube, right? The Cube um, looks great. It's a work of art. It's a little expensive for what it does. What I really want and what I think there is room and precedent for is something, maybe call it an X-Mac because the X is gaining, you know, notoriety in Apple naming schemes. It's kind of like the pizza box power PC I wanted way back in 1995. You don't need to bundle it with a display or, you know, build a display into the unit. I want a, a decently powered Mac that doesn't need to come with a whole bunch of stuff so the cost can stay low, that you can kind of slot into an existing setup. Um, And because it doesn't need to have like a display, it doesn't need to be like the iMac where things are kind of, like Ed, you said, uh, when we're talking about the iMac, like kind of molded around the display. So the display is the centerpiece. A truly headless Mac uh, could probably just be a box and it'll be a good looking box maybe not as good looking as the cube, but it can be a box and a box means you can put cards in. You could put in that DOS compatibility card I wanted all those years ago. Um, I think the cube has shown that there is room outside of the two by two grid. And I think a more practical version of the cube, this X Mac um, is where Apple's going to go. Another big thing that's happening in 2001 is we're having all these things, uh, like I said last year, that we got to be plugging in to our Mac all the time. We have uh, digital cameras. Some people have uh, digital video cameras. I think my dad is is eyeing one, and I want to make goofy movies with it. Um, lots of things. And there's a little bit of precedence for Apple uh, to make a camera. Ed and I have messed around with a quick take <laughs> a couple of years ago. Um, but I think video is the way forward. I've been talking about media in a lot of these wish lists, And so I think it would be really cool if Apple made a, uh, their own video camera. Maybe it can take stills too, but it'd be cool to take a, a video on an Apple device and then edit it on your iMac in iMovie. Right. The, uh, the iMac is the digital hub that all of these things are connecting to, but we're still relying on third parties to provide those. And the question is, could could Apple make something that is a better, more integrated experience? Uh, I guess, you know, Sony is the, the next best uh, with the FireWire accessories because they're also involved in making a FireWire. But uh, Apple knows the uh, connections and internals of its machines better than anyone. Back to Mac OS X, because uh, I think this is like the really big transition that's happening now. Um, I've seen the developer preview. I've seen how it's kind of progressed. And um, there are a couple of things missing. One, um, it's it's like really a full realization of the, the next step. 
operating system. It's Unix based. And I know it's going to be different. That's the, the developer preview was wider than any developer preview I've, I've seen in Apple's history. So there's going to take a lot getting used to. And I, all I hope is that um, the ability to hack the system for lack of a better word persists. And what I really mean is I hope that there's a version of ResEdit for Mac OS 10. And while I'm wishing for software that gets updated, um, even though I haven't used it as much in recent years, maybe because it never became kind of like this, this native for the web extension, I would love to have HyperCard kind of revamped and re-released for Mac OS 10. Some of these first party Apple applications that I hope stick around in this new era of the operating system. How'd I do this year? <laughs> so uh, this is uh, the last year that you were going to make a wish list for, and you uh, went out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> uh, let's start with uh, the XMAC. Uh, 2001 was about the time that people really started talking about the XMAC. I think it was when XMAC became a uh, current term for this mid-tier uh, prosumer, expandable, but not super expensive tower configuration Mac. And, uh, well, we're still talking about this type of uh, machine, uh, even you know, talking about what will the new Mac Pro be like? Will it be cheaper than the iMac Pro? Would that actually make it like an XMac? Um, we are still waiting for the XMac. Someday. Someday, Apple. The first-party DV camera was a pretty cool idea, I thought. Um, the fact that Apple would start creating its own accessory hardware to the digital hub and bringing everything to center around your Mac. Um, Apple did release a very important piece of accessory hardware in the digital hub in 2001, but it was not a video creation device. It was a music consumption device, and it is, of course, the iPod. Um, which really rounded out the digital hub um, and you know the halo effect and bringing lots of people to the Mac, um, especially after a couple of years later, the iPod gained compatibility with Windows. So uh, wrong direction, right idea of making the hub a more attractive proposition. Um, early days of OS 10 and what we could do with it, ResEdit equivalent for OS 10. I think that by this point, like you said, you know, looking at um, the public beta, uh, poking around in apps and seeing how they were written, it was clear that the resource fork was a thing of the past that was not ever in next step. That came from the Unix way of storing data within files, within applications. They have the single data fork. And so there was really no way to get at this stuff. Um Although we quickly discovered show package contents, um, because so many things in uh, in OS X applications and in some types of documents uh, were in these bundles or packages where you could actually go in and see individual files that in a way behaved like resources. Some of the more simple resource types, um, you know, like the media resource types like sound files or pictures that you could replace. Um, we also discovered the P list, right? So that brought a, uh, a whole nother level of 
um, tweaking secret settings and those sorts of things that maybe you could have previously done in ResEdit in some sort of templated uh, text or uh, numeric field in ResEdit. So there was no ResEdit application, but uh, the in, in its early days, uh, Mac OS X was not totally unhackable. In fact, it was fairly hackable. Um, this was the era of hacksies and those sorts oh, of things, my goodness, which yeah. Yeah, right. So, um, and you know, today Mac OS 10 and applications are far more locked down. I think just the other day I tried to, um, I tried to go into a keynote file by doing show package contents, but when they did the re- rewrite of keynote a couple years ago, they changed it from packages to zip bundles. Um, so you can still get in there. Um, but even that early OS X way of doing that has has changed. So we're a couple generations past ResEdit. And uh, poor HyperCard. HyperCard never made it to OS X. I think that people were legitimately clamoring for a way to run HyperCard stacks on OS X that wasn't in the classic emulation layer uh, because the people who had, <laughs> the people who had actually built the legitimate CRMs for their business, um, and <laughs> were really relying on what they didn't even see necessarily as a hypercard stack anymore, but almost as a full fledged application, people wanted to still have those. And the classic layer was not, you know, it, it didn't leave them in the cold immediately, but it was clearly not a future solution for HyperCard going forward. Okay, one more year for me here. We're going to fast forward a little bit to 2006. Um, so just to, to set the stage here, I think one of the biggest rumors heading into 2006 is there are rumors about an ITV. Yep, still still here, still it's time. It's totally time. And I think that this time uh you know, the signs are really pointing to it. Front row capability was added to OS 10 in 2005. Uh Macs are shipping with these wonderful little IR remotes that let you either control like a presentation or now thanks to the front row capability as soon as you press the remote, it goes into this media mode and you can bring up your iTunes uh, library and play all of your songs, but also the videos that you've put into your iTunes library. Maybe some of the ones that you created in iMovie. Or now, maybe some of the ones that you've actually purchased from Apple. Because starting in October of 2005, the iTunes store now includes movies and TV. So all the signs are pointing to the fact that, okay, look, you buy an iMac. It comes with a remote control. It comes with a special operating system feature for viewing video. Apple is selling video. Why would they not bring this, again, from the Mac to the living room? And the reason for this is that, you know, the iMac is great, has a good screen, but people want to watch TV shows and movies on the best screen in their house. So this is probably the reason that Apple will go with a set-top box here, uh, and this box will you know, connect to your TV, and you should be able to have this front row experience by default. So cut out the Mac OS and just go directly into your iTunes library, have direct access to the iTunes store, be able to buy the TV and movies that you want to see, and just go straight from there. Um, 
obviously those are big files. People are still, you know, getting to the point where uh, they have better broadband connections at home. So the device will have to have, the ITV will have to have some sort of internal storage so you can download and save those and have a true library uh, waiting for you. Uh, But this should be really a great package. Of course, there is still the possibility that Apple goes the direction we've been hoping for all these decades and builds a TV. Of course, if you buy a TV from Apple, you would want it to be the primary TV in your home, I think. You know, if you have an office or a bedroom where you already have a Mac, front row is doing great. Uh, or maybe you have a small TV there that you could plug a set-top box into. But if you're going to make a centerpiece TV, people are going to want it to be the size that is most popular for TVs right now. They're going to want a 42-inch screen, which is bigger than anything that Apple has ever made. Uh, their cinema displays top out at 30 inches. But of course, those are you know high-density displays. Um, they're uh, really focused on like color correctness and things like that. And so the question is, could Apple get some really good display technology and increase the size 12 inches and not have it cost $3,000? That's the question. Going back to the Mac, this is an interesting one where uh, I think Apple is a little bit stuck into making this product this year. So there have not been new PowerBooks in a long time, and it was looking pretty dire for a while. But then last year, Apple announced the big transition to Intel, which macOS is going to support, which was a surprise in one respect, but if you think about its next step origins, actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there have to be new PowerBooks this year. They're, they just have to. And the problem has been that they can't get the G5 internals into the small laptop sizes and make the heat uh, dissipation work, get the thermals to work. Uh, so it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. So the question is, we're in the middle of the Intel transition. Apple's given us a roadmap for this that's going to last all year. And the question is, is Intel going to be ready this year for a laptop? And I think the answer is no, because there were reports that when developers got demo units last year, they were in Power Mac tower cases, and they ran very hot in there, which has huge fans, big cheese grater front. And so the notion that an Intel chip would make it down into a PowerBook this year seems pretty remote. So even though Apple is going away from the G5, I think they just have to release a PowerBook G5 to tide over the people who have been wanting to update their laptops for a couple of years now. One thing that they may have to do for that, though, you know, talking about getting things into the smallest package, is they would probably have to abandon the much-beloved 12-inch PowerBook to get a more powerful processor in there. So... But even so, I think, you know, this is a stopgap machine, but it just has to be released in this year uh, to get people over the hump and into the Intel era. Is that it? That would be a big year. That that would be a big year, but I, I, I think this is going to be a huge year because there have been rumors swirling about what is Apple's next big device going to be. We talked about the TV. What if they don't go for the TV, but instead decide to go into the phone area? Uh, Palm has done this to some success with the Treo devices. People want 
their phones to do more. They want them to access email, access the web. And we're at the point where we're carrying multiple devices. You've got an iPod in your pocket, and you've got your phone in another pocket. What if you could put them together? Does Apple have the technology to do this? Is there an iPod phone on the horizon? So I think that it's quite possible. Uh, the things that you would need to do for this is I think that it would have to go for the flash-based solution rather than the hard drive-based solution for the iPod form factor. So not the full-size iPod, but the the Nano type. So the iPod Nano comes in 2 and 4 gigabytes, so maybe uh, this phone could up to 4 or 8 gigabytes of flash storage for uh, the operating system, for movies, and for those internet applications that you would want to have on there. But I think the externals, the size of the iPod would be good. I would be happy to replace the iPod and the phone with something just the size of the iPod. The big question there is, what about the input? Um, and you know, the iPods now have the click wheel, which is great for navigating things, but is not great for a lot of intensive input. And the question here is the feature set. So if you have just basic phone things, you know, like being able to view your calendar or uh, read an email or send a text message, then the iPod OS would be pretty good for that. And the click wheel would even be okay for that. Tapping out a text message, you know, now you use the like T9 uh, input on a numeric keypad, using the click wheel would be just as just as quick to like flick through the alphabet if you only have to compose a short message. But if you wanted to send emails, that would get perhaps pretty ugly. So we wouldn't necessarily be able to have some of the more advanced smartphone features like in Palm OS, where you have much better text input with handwriting capability. So if they stay with the click wheel there, it could be, uh, it could be uh, a more limited device, but uh, would also be more familiar to iPod users. One thing that it has to have, though, I think, is uh, a built-in web browser. Again, you could enter your, you know, you could have all of your bookmarks synced over from your Mac. You could enter web addresses fairly quickly uh, through a click wheel device. And I think that with the new video iPods that are available, the screen is high resolution enough. There's a lot of sites that are being adapted for mobile web. You know, Palm has a mobile browser that you tap on links with. Being able to just uh, you know, cycle through the links in a page very quickly um, and to scroll the text with the with the click wheel, uh, I think that would be a, a pretty easy solution. Uh, but it would be limited to those mobile optimized websites because otherwise, I've tried to load up sites that are not optimized for a mobile experience in uh, what is it Blazor, the Palm web browser, and and they just break. I mean, you can't even read the site. So um, some way of detecting that and pushing more people to creating good mobile web experiences uh, would be key for uh, a phone designed by Apple. And to that end, maybe they would have to uh, you know, give some support on the development end. We've talked about getting Apple into the, uh, the web development uh, game, and they're finally there with iWeb in, uh, in their iLife suite of applications. Um, you know, it's great for people who want to make a school project website or something like that, or a little personal homepage or photo gallery. Uh, but of course, those kinds of things, it also has a lot of, um, 
you know, very graphics intensive templates and things that are laid out to almost like a fixed size on uh, large desktop screens. So maybe uh, an update here, uh, perhaps a more pro version of iWeb that would let you go between those mobile and desktop views would uh, would help ease the transition. Big year, right? That would be a huge year. We all know that 2006 was the biggest year in Apple's history. Well, um, let's let's see how you did. We'll first go back to the the mythical ITV. You built a strong case for it, and um, you mentioned the possibility of both a set top box and a like a television monitor. I'll start with the bad news first. There still is no Apple television screen. No, <laughs> this is something uh, Apple still hasn't made and is never going to make. Sorry, Gene Monster. But at the end of 2006, we get a preview of a new device, uh, a, a TV box called ITV. And this accomplishes some of the things <laughs> that you were going for. It does have the front row experience. It uses the same white remote and it accesses uh, the Apple media that you've been accustomed to purchasing on your Mac and viewing on your Mac or viewing on your video capable iPod. First of all, did I get did I get credit even though it shipped in January of 2007? I think so. Okay. It it was announced and it was announced as the ITV and then it was released as the Apple TV because the ITV network in Britain told Apple that they were going to sue them. <laughs> so yeah, you get credit for the ITV Apple TV device, uh but you did have one thing in it that uh didn't come to pass. And that is like the complete library management um, happening on the device. And that's not how the first Apple ITV worked. This seems so basic, but you have firsthand experience. Tell us how bad it was. It was a device that uh, you, you plugged into your TV and you got onto your uh, local network, whether Ethernet or Wi-Fi, but you had to find it in iTunes on a Mac and copy media to it. And I think it had a four gig hard, no 40 gig hard drive spinning hard drive in it. Yeah, there were, that was the, there were two storage options, 40 and a hundred, I think. And, uh, you basically had to, um, anticipate <laughs> what you'd like to watch on your TV when you were at your Mac and, uh, send it over to the TV box, uh, wait for it to get there, which could be a while. And uh, and then walk over to your TV and start playing. It did give you the kind of the the lean back in your couch experience, but uh, you couldn't just do it on a whim. And this is a criticism I've heard of streaming services versus television. Like with broadcast or cable television, you can turn on the TV and something will play like it's ready. It's being broadcast and funneled into your home. And with streaming, you kind of have to pick what you want to watch. There aren't channels that are playing things at you. And it's kind of a similar thing with this first I slash Apple TV. You couldn't just turn it on and do everything from it. You had to kind of plan out what you wanted to do with it beforehand. I recall you saying that you, you had one and because you didn't actually have Ethernet cabling all the way out to your TV, that you would have to like unplug it, bring it over to your Mac do the copies and then take it back to the living room. Right. Cause that was way faster than Wi-Fi. And at some points 
um, cause my Mac was a laptop. I basically ended up doing what I would do, uh, later in life, which is like hook up your Mac to the TV with a, a, a VGA or whatever cable. I would bring my laptop to the TV <laughs> so I could copy things from my laptop to the TV. That's just overcomplicating things. Yeah. Thankfully the, the Apple TV has gone through a bunch of, uh, refinements and is a product that mostly makes sense now. But like you said, it's it's now gone to the all streaming model. So never in the Apple TV's life did it have my wish, which was buy a movie and download it to the device. All right. Your next big wish item was uh, advancing the PowerBook line. Uh, I like how you said, like, Apple has to make new PowerBooks this year. Um, the mythical PowerBook G5. The three inch thick PowerBook G5. Will not ever happen. Uh, your point of like thermals are an issue. Yeah, I think Steve Jobs said as much when he introduced the successor to the PowerBook line, um, which was in the very beginning of 2006, the MacBook Pro uh, PowerBooks with Intel's inside. And uh, they were ready a lot sooner than I think anyone anticipated, basically at the very beginning of that year long transition. Uh, there is a fantastic note here in our show notes that uh, kind of tying together the Intel transition and uh, thermal trouble, which is uh, one of my favorite posts from Daring Fireball, the big fan post. <laughs> We've mentioned this before, but it's it's too good not to link. That was that was what I was referring to when people said that uh, those demo units ran really hot. One of your predictions as part of this overall transition is that uh, the the much beloved but very small and thermally constrained 12-inch PowerBook uh, had to be abandoned, and that did come true. Eventually, the MacBook Pro line would have 15-inch and 17-inch models, but the, uh, the the smaller screen size fell to what was previously the iBook and then became the, the just MacBook line at 13 inches. And then uh, the big prediction, an iPod phone. I, I was a little early and a little dumb. Dumb in the dumb versus smartphone. The iPod phone, the iPhone did not come out in 2006, but it was announced at the very beginning of 2007. So yeah, you were a little early. Um, talking about how the actual device ended up functioning, one of your first points was that it would have to be flash-based, uh, like the iPod Nanos of the day. This is true. Uh, you're, even you got the capacities right, double what the iPod Nano was providing at launch, 4 and 8 gigabytes. But uh as we know now, the iPhone launched in the summer of 2007. And by the end of the summer, they had already bumped the capacities and lowered the price and on all these things. So uh, your 4 and 8 turned into 8 and 16, I think, in the first year. About its design and its controls. Uh, yeah, I think we all were expecting some kind of click wheel operated phone. There are some really atrocious mock-ups on the internet that we'll put in show notes that inspired inspired this wish of mine. Because <laughs> it was just too tempting to see the similarities between the iPod's click wheel and the, the rotary telephone wheel, which, you know, could approximate T9 text input by, you know, putting the same letters to each number along a circle, but not ideal. Um, so obviously the iPhone was a, a, a full touch screen, which is now even, you know, fuller to the edges of the device with the iPhone 10. And then getting into the software and specifically how it got onto the internet over, you know, cellular and or Wi-Fi, it did have a built-in web browser. 
So basically what I asked for here was the phone and the internet communicator, but not the widescreen iPod with touch controls. Because that was the thing that was, of those three major technology features, the the three products that were in fact the iPhone, that was the one that nobody was foreseeing. Nobody thought that that was actually what they were going to release. So that's why we got these really goofy mock-ups and strange form factor designs, um, because nobody saw multi-touch coming. So it did have the web browser that could get on the internet, and you thought it would probably just be limited to those mobile-optimized sites, those WAP sites. I had I had a terrible phone that could only get on the WAP internet. Um, no, it got the full internet uh, in full glory on the, the widescreen display and uh, mobile safari. Just towards the end of last year, uh, the New York Times has gone to loading a mobile site on Safari on the iPhone. And it's like, it's ruining my nostalgia because that was the demo was I'm going to load the whole New York Times website and be able to zoom in and see articles. And for 10 years, that was the case. If you went to uh, the New York Times website, you got the full desktop version on regardless of what iOS device you were using. And now it's pretty, but I expect that like newspaper like zoomed out tiny stories. And I've I've actually done the like load desktop version a couple times on my phone just because like this is wrong. And then speaking of websites, uh, iWeb. Yes, it was. We we knew it was coming. We knew it was like another puzzle piece for the box art on top of iLife. Um, and iWeb came out in January of two thousand and six. But it was kind of the the dumbed down uh, website creation tool, kind of like iMovie to Final Cut. Uh, what we got in iWeb is to what you were asking for. Um, there weren't any templates that were designed to uh, be optimized for mobile. And actually, the websites that iWeb turned out were kind of bad. <laughs> I mean, they looked great and they did take care of a lot of cool things like RSS for you. But if you did view source on iWeb pages, you could see that like it was littered with divs and everything to uh, accomplish the kind of drag and drop wussy wig design that you know people were, were free to run wild with. Um, and you couldn't even get into on iWeb like the, the 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 deep code level to kind of handcraft some of those things on the back end yourself. So we did get iWeb, but we didn't get the uh, the full featured iWeb that you wished for. Oh well, still not a bad year. Not a bad year at all, and really set us up for a monster two thousand seven. Two thousand seven, which uh, we're gonna leave that one off because I think uh, I think that wraps up our wish lists. So we've obviously skipped a couple years here. We didn't start all the way at the very beginning. Um, but this is this has been a fun exercise, certainly for me, to kind of place yourself at the beginning of a given year in the Mac history. Uh, know what, what's come before, and obviously you know what comes next, but to try and figure out what did I really want knowing just what we had at this point. I think that that gives us a lot of perspective for the present. You know, that's one of the things that we like to do by going back and doing this research and thinking about this and talking about this is to figure out where we stand now 
So I may go back and reread some of those wishlist articles for 2018 now that I've um, deliberately composed these wishlists that are uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, I think I'll have a better idea of what the possibilities are. So instead of getting hung up on the wishes to see the way that things could go differently, because we had some of our wishes here that were just, you know, never touched and were just totally, you know, X wrong, never happened. But there were some where our wish didn't come true, but actually something different and more interesting and better came out of it. And always looking for those things in the present, I think will be make for a more interesting 2018. And if you find yourself uh, listening and we missed something from one of the years we covered that you think would have been a, a clear want, or if you'd like to try the exercise yourself for a year that we skipped and uh, see what you would have wanted at the beginning of that year, we'd be totally game to uh, see what you can come up with. So uh, send those to us. You can do that on our website, simplebeep.com. There's a contact form there. Or you can talk to us on Twitter, uh, full 280 characters, take full advantage, make a big long list. Uh, we are at simple underscore beep. You can also find both of us on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.